0: Okay. Just on? It's on. It's <laughs> on. All right. If I could get your attention. We'll get this show on the road. We continue our study in the book of Acts, and today we're in Acts 8 and 9, which is a, uh, a very important, you might call it a watershed moment in the history of the church. Certainly it's a turning point in the book of Acts, and uh, the key thing that's going to happen is what you might call a transformation in the life of uh, one Saul who becomes probably the uh, greatest missionary to the Gentile world and the history of the world, so uh, transformations very much like uh, Kramer in today's clip transforms into a superhero. Right. <laughs> uh, so watershed events. I've heard that term watershed so many times that I yeah you know, I don't know if you do this this with the great things about the internet now. You know you can just immediately Google and get all the definitions of of it up. I, and you hear these words all your life and you, you know what they mean, but I mean in detail you don't necessarily know what it is. And so I looked up the watershed. Literally a watershed is a piece of land, like a, maybe a, a piece of rock that juts up out of a river or a piece of land that's higher, a piece of land that causes a river to change course. It's a turning point in the river. And so that phrase was, began to be used Uh, people would say a watershed event or watershed moment, which means a unique, important, historical change of course. Something happened that caused everything to go in a different direction, to change course, a major turning point in history. So then I looked up the top ten watershed events in history, right? (laughs) So in the top ten watershed events in the history of the United States, and you may agree with these or not. It's not me. So it's, a fight, you know, go fight the internet. Uh, number 10, the assassination of Lincoln. Nine, Louisiana Purchase. Eight, the Manhattan Project, you know, nuclear weapons. Seven, the Vietnam War. Six, death of Osama bin Laden. Five, assassination of Kennedy. Four, American Revolution. Three, Civil War. Two, uh, September 11, 2001. And number one... The Apollo 11 moonwalk. I was looking at that. And I said, "Number one was the Apollo." I, I don't know about that, but that's that's what they had. And then also it had a, a list of top 10 watershed events in church history since 100 AD. Now our lesson today is going to be about something that happened in you know like 42 AD or or maybe 38 AD, right? And so what happened? in the church after a hundred. Number 10, the Dead Sea Scrolls. 9, Martin Luther posting the 95 protests on the church to start the Reformation. 8, Erasmus, Greek New Testament. Uh, 7, the invention of the printing press. 6, Thomas Aquinas wrote his systematic theology. Uh, 5, the division of the Catholic Church into the the Eastern Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, and the Western Church. Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Four, Jerome's translation of the Bible into Latin. Three, the conversion of Augustine, which we're going to talk about today. And two, the Council of Nicaea in 325, uh, determining the nature of Christ. And then the number one is the conversion of Constantine. He was the Roman emperor, the first one uh, to be a Christian and legalized, made Christianity the uh, religion of the Roman Empire. So, Top ten watershed events change, caused everything to change, uh, to transform, to take a different uh, tact. Uh, and we are studying in today's lesson in Acts chapter 8 9, a couple of watershed events in the history of Christianity during the first century. That one I l- read was after the first century. But during the first century, the book of Acts is the history of church in the first century. And so we're going to be looking at the watershed events in the history of Christianity in the first century. And so my challenge to you is during the next, how many lessons we got left? Four after today? Today and four more lessons is to make your list on the watershed events in the history of the church in the first century. And which all occur, of course, in the, uh, in the book of Acts. And, of course, number one, obviously, I'll give you the first three in my list anyway, the birth, life, and the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. That obviously has to be number one turning point. Secondly would be Acts 2 that we did uh, two weeks ago. the Acts 2, coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. That was a huge turning point. And then I think number three would be in today's lesson, which is the Acts 9 conversion of Saul. Because when Saul's converted, he's the first one to really take the gospel to the rest of the world in a big way. And so uh, he also wrote half of the New Testament. So it was a huge event, right? So I'm giving you three of them right off the bat. Surely you can come up in the next seven how much help do you need? But uh, somewhere on that list also needs to be the beginning of the persecution in Acts chapter 8. So if you have your Bible or your electronic device, turn to Acts chapter 8. This, uh, this actually was a turning point in the sense that you know Jesus gave them the, the great commission. Remember Acts 1a? Go out into the world, go and share the gospel in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria. So everything he said just kept getting wider, and then eventually to the end of the earth, so to all over the world. That was the Great Commission. Well, about eight years later, after Jesus gave them that, about eight years later is is about when Acts chapter 8 takes place, and guess what? They're all still in Jerusalem, right? That's like, you know, if, if we were given the Great Commission and we say, we're going to take the gospel to the end of Howland Park. <laughs> the full depths of the park cities, right? They're still in Jerusalem. They haven't left. And so you know how the sovereignty of God works, right? How the providence of God works. And you know Romans, I mean, yeah, Romans 8, 28 says all things work together for good. Well, God is going to take something in today's lesson that looks really rough. It's the martyrdom of Stephen in chapter 7. The first Christian martyr is Stephen there in Jerusalem, and he goes into a synagogue and starts preaching the gospel and really riles them up, and they take him out, and they have a kangaroo court-type trial, and at the end of that they stone him to death. And that's kind of this uh, watershed moment in the sense that now... All the, the persecution begins from that event on, uh, Saul and the other religious leaders there in Jerusalem are going out, arresting all the, all the Christians they can find, rounding them all up, going into their houses, and then executing them. So it's a huge watershed event, not only because of the persecution, but now all of a sudden, if you look at your text, look at Uh, Chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, look what it says. And Saul, at this time, uh, Saul was a Pharisee there in Jerusalem, a religious leader, completely against Christianity, determined to stamp it out. And so we read, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death, and on that day a great persecution arose against the church. That's terrible. That's the most horrible thing. I can't believe it. But guess what? Read the rest of the story. What does God do with this terrible thing? What did God do? He used that persecution to get them out, evangelizing the rest of the world. So immediately, they scatter. They leave Jerusalem. Now they're in Judea, and they're in Samaria. They still got a ways to go, but at least they go outside of their comfort zone because of this persecution. So uh, there you see it. They are scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So a a watershed event. And in chapter 8, you see uh, an example of that scattering and that gospel being taken out uh, into Judea and Samaria, which is Philip. And so we, we find here in chapter 8, we, we find Philip, who eventually in the history of the church became known as Philip the Evangelist. Now there was an apostle named Philip, but this is a different guy. This is the deacon from chapter 6. And this guy uh, becomes a great evangelist, which tells you something about the spiritual gifts that God gives. Uh, this guy wasn't a minister. I, I doubt if he had the gift of preaching or teaching. The apostles actually who have that gift stay in Jerusalem and continue to build up the church. It's guys like Philip now that become evangelists and they go out into the world. And so Philip and the rest of these guys are, are out very active in Samaria we find in chapter 8 and we see in verse 6 multitudes were hearing the gospel and a lot of people were coming to Christ and it was just a, a huge deal because as you may know You probably studied the parable of the Good Samaritan and you know that Jews hated Samaritans. They had a rivalry going. They had rival temples. Uh, The Jews looked at them as half-breeds because they had intermarried with Gentiles. And they had also changed, altered what we would call Judaism. They only used, the Samaritans only used the uh, Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And they had added a bunch of idolatrous stuff Uh, to the religion, and so uh, they were enemies, right? So the very idea of these guys going out to Samaria, there is no way they'd have gone unless God forced them to go. That's what it comes down to. And of course, that's the way we are today as well. God has his providence. God knows what he's doing. And in spite of us, quite often, the gospel goes out and God's will will be done. And so that's what's going on here and uh, you have this interesting story of this guy named uh, Simon because he's seeing all these, per- these people transformed. And he sees when uh, a couple of apostles come up to find out what's going on up there, they hear all these uh, incredible stories about people coming to Christ. So they go up there and they lay hands on them and they see the Holy Spirit come on them. And so this Simon guy, he's, he's a magician. He's called Simon the Magician. Right? And he's been making money by doing all these tricks and stuff. Have you ever seen a, a street magician? If you have, you've probably seen him on TV or maybe you've been to Vegas or something. But, you know, they, they can, or maybe you've been to a party and there's a magician there. And I mean, he wows you. Those guys can wow you. I mean, you walk away and go, how did they do that? I know that's a trick. Well, he was actually fooling all these people and making them think it was really magic and stuff. So, when he saw the real deal, the real deal in the apostles and the gifts of the Spirit that God had given them to heal and to do uh, signs and wonders, he says, I got to have that. How much is that? I'll pay you, you know. And uh, so you have this dramatic encounter with the apostles, and they basically say, You think? The grace of God and the gift of God is for sale? And he just really read in the riot act and condemned him. And, and, and there's been a lot of discussion whether this Simon guy was saved or not because it, it kind of says he is. But I, I, I'm looking at it and what uh, the apostles say to him, the way they dress him down and the comments they make. It sounds like he's actually not saved. And, but really it doesn't matter. You get the gist, the point of this. This is all a thing of God. It's not man-made. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. This is a gift of God that's coming to the Samaritans. And so the second example uh, in verse 26 of of God at work is in God's providence in this evangelism, the sovereignty in evangelism, is the great story, the Ethiopian eunuch. And this is one of the, the, the answers to the great question that people ask all the time, What about those who've never heard? What about those who've never heard? And, of course, the answer is God has promised anybody that's interested, anybody that's seeking God, God has promised to take him the gospel. And so we give that up to God. What about those who've never heard? If anybody's interested, God has promised to take care of that. So we give it up to him. We trust God for that. We go do what we can do in our sphere of influence and the opportunities we get, but if you don't think you can get to the pygmy in Africa or the guy on the deserted island or the mountaintop in Nepal, you're probably right. But God can. Interesting story. uh, In one of my, my Wednesday Bible study, this guy that works for East West Ministries is in the Bible study, and I said... You know, you can't get to the guy on the mountain in Nepal, but God can. And this guy raises his hand, and I said, yes? He says, uh, I was just there last week, and uh, that guy is saved. And he had his phone, and he pulls up the picture of this guy on the mountain top of Nepal that he led to Christ and passed it around the Bible study. Is that great? Uh, so God is involved and you see it here in the story look at it, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, arise and go forth, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem's Gaza, so Philip had no interest, no inclination to go there, God moved him, led him down there he arose and went, And behold there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all her treasures, so he's a top dog guy, and he obviously, I think there was a lot of Judaism. There's a history in the, you know, you've got the Sheba, Queen of Sheba, which is where this is, had come and talked to Solomon. So there's probably uh, some roots there. And he came to Jerusalem kind of on a, a search for the truth, right? And he's got this scroll from Isaiah that he's reading. And Philip catches up with him. We see in verse 28, he's got the a scroll he's reading from the prophet Isaiah and the spirit led Philip down there go up and join that join this guy and lead him to Christ so when Philip had run up verse 30 he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said do you understand what you're reading this is interesting this guy a lot of times people say, well you know this bible you know i've read the bible but it's very it's very difficult and i don't completely understand it and i said That's why you've got preachers in the churches. (laughs) That's why you've got guys who lead Bible studies. That's why God has gifted your minister to help you. And so here, God is, again, God's involved. God has sovereignly gifted people to do this. And in this case, he sends Philip down there to explain it all to him. The guy has the word of God, and Philip explains it to him. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, well, how could I unless someone guides me? Exactly. It makes me think of Romans 10. If you go read Romans 10 later, you'll see uh, Paul says the same question. What about those who've never heard? He says, if anybody's interested, God will send his messenger. He says, how will they know if they don't hear? And he says, God will send a preacher. And how will they believe if they've never heard? And they will speak the gospel and they will believe so I mean it, it, it's all right out there and this is what's going on right here and so they give you the, the uh, scripture from Isaiah 53 and uh, if you read all of Isaiah 53 it's an amazing prophecy about Jesus the Messiah and Jesus Christ and what he'll do and what he'll ac- accomplish he'll atone for the sins that we've committed he's sinless he's innocent but we're guilty, and he took all of our guilt upon himself, right there in Isaiah, and that's what he's reading. And so, the eunuch says, verse 34, "Tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Who is this that is, will do this? Is he speaking of himself or of someone else?" And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this, from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So he preached the gospel, and the guy believed it. And they were going along. The eunuch said, "Look, water." What prevents me from being baptized? You know, I'd like to make a public profession of my faith now, which is what water baptism is, right? And so they go down and do that, and you have his profession of faith there. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and etc. And uh, so they went down, and he was baptized, and the Spirit of God came on him, and so obviously the Ethiopian eunuch, down in the desert someplace. (laughs) Nobody would ever go there. He's the perfect example. The guy you could never get to. The mountaintop of Nepal. This is him. And God sent his messenger, his preacher, to preach the gospel. And that's what God is now doing all over the world. All over the world. He's sending people, even right now, and has been for the last 2,000 years. And so, This watershed moment where the uh, representatives of God, God's messengers, His evangelists, are now actually obeying the Great Commission. They're leaving Jerusalem here in Acts chapter 8 and going out uh, to obey Him. All right? And uh, as I was reading that story, the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, I was thinking, what exactly happened there? What, What all happened there? I'll just give you five things that I saw. First of all, God prepared his heart. The guy was a seeker. I mean, in the sense that he's out seeking the truth, wanting to know about God. And I think God has created all of us with that inherent knowledge of Him and a desire. But most people suppress that desire and suppress that knowledge. But if anybody comes out and says, I've, I've got to know, I, I know there's a God, I want to. God will prepare his heart and God will send someone. So God uses, who will he send? God uses his people, us, as tools, as messengers, just like Philip went out. And so God sent somebody to him. And our job, of course, what's Philip's job? What's our job? To be available. Lord, if you give me an opportunity, I'll make myself available. It's just that simple. I'll show up. And again, this guy, Uh, was someone that was seeking God. He's open, he he wants to know, he's inquisitive, he's asking questions, uh, wants to know the truth. And then he gets, fourthly, he gets the revelation, he gets the gospel, God's word. Uh, That saving truth that he's got to hear and believe, he receives out of the scripture. Not just some truth, not just any truth, not just some opinion, this is the word of God, right? This is the truth, this is the gospel. And when did it happen? At a point in time, at a point in time. A lot of people think they were saved over a broad period of time. It just kind of happened over, you know, 30 years. Or, But actually, from God's point of view, uh, this happens at a point in time. At that point in time, you actually commit yourself and believe a saving faith, Uh God gives you his spirit and your life begins to change. So in a way you could almost like wonder wonder what it, that was because a lot of people say I was saved when I was five years old or whatever. So whenever it is you think your life began to change or that impact uh, happened to you even if you were a kid or now uh, that was the point in time you don't need to know. God knows. But the reason I make that emphasis is because we need to understand that everybody's got to make that. There's a decision point, and everybody's got to make it at a point in time. Okay. Now, uh, as I said before, Chapter Nine, uh, one of the truly amazing things of how the Lord works is how He, He, He works in such dramatic ways in the lives of some people and not of others. Other people, you know, you know, we have typically, uh, you know, kind of a boring story of how we came to Christ. A lot of people, their, their parents just led them that way and, and they always believe. But then there's these few people like Saul here in this story and many others who had these dramatic, mind-blowing conversions, right? And I think that happens because uh, these people are particularly stubborn. <laughs> and so uh, God does dramatic things to, to bring them in and then he uses them Because they have such an incredible story, God then uses them uh, typically in a very dramatic way. So, and a lot of times these are, like Paul, like Saul, we saw who this guy is. He's the most unlikely guy that you would ever imagine. Who would God pick out and choose? He'll take the nicest and the best guy, the most popular guy, right? No, he chooses this Saul of Tarsus who's out killing people. Whoa. Whoa. We would never expect that. The least likely guy uh, to carry the torch for Christ to the Gentile world. Amazing. And I would think, like I said before, I think the, the rule most of us, most people, not me, but most people came to Christ when they were children or teenagers. You know, that's the typical thing. But then we have these few dramatic people like Saul that had these dramatic testimonies. And God has chosen historically to knock these people down and and drag them to their senses uh, in these incredible ways. I'll give you a couple examples of some pillars of the church. Uh, Augustine, the greatest theologian in the history of the Christian church. A lot of people think it's Calvin or Luther, but you know where they got their theology? Augustine. He was the original theologian. And when you talk about Calvinism or I'm a Calvinist, you're actually an Augustinian. Because all Calvin and Luther and those guys did was take the writings of Augustine and bring them back into the church. They had drifted away from Augustine. They had even perverted or added to or taken away from the teaching or the theology of Augustine. And the reformers brought it back in, in the Reformation. So Augustine was, uh, he had a wild, he was a wild guy, he had a wild conversion, he had a wife and concubines and the whole deal, and he was uh, the first probably that I've ever read but a guy who actually admitted to having a sexual addiction, you might say, and uh, a lot of his friends, he was a teacher of rhetoric in Rome, and he took a job uh, working in, Milan, in 384 A.D., 384 A.D., uh, with the Father Ambrose, a priest there, who shared the gospel with him repeatedly, and he became convinced that it was true. But he was, he said, prevented from accepting the truth by his weakness in dealing with constant sexual temptation. And his prayer was, grant me, Lord grant me chastity and self-restraint, but not yet. There's still some things I want to do. And so he just put it off, and he said, you know, that sounds good, and I've I've looked into that, and I think it's all right, but uh, I'm just not ready, you know. And so he found himself, he started going to the Bible study that Ambrose taught, and after one, he went into the garden to think about it, and then he was kind of praying, and he heard these children who were practicing in the choir in the church, and they were singing, uh, take and read. And when he heard that, he just felt like that was God speaking to him, that he needed to take the Word of God and start reading and studying it. And he just had this spiritual experience at that time. And uh, he opened the Bible. I mean, the classic deal, you've seen it where people, like, open the Bible and then do that and hope God says something to them. That actually happened with Augustine. And so he just happened to turn to Romans 13, and it says... Not in reveling and drunkenness, lewd behavior, lust and wantonness. No. Rather, arm yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he felt like that was a personal message to him. And it sounds like it, doesn't it? And so he says, in that instance, I came to the end of the sentence. The light of confidence flooded my heart, and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled, and that was it for me. He came to Christ... Uh, He went uh, back to theology school and he ended up being a a priest in northern Africa and then he became a bishop. It happened pretty fast. So in 395 he became the Bishop of Hippo and started writing all these books that he wrote that we still have today. Second guy that you've probably heard the story of dramatic is uh, John Newton, the guy that wrote the song Amazing Grace. He was a slave ship captain. And he got in this terrible storm, and it was the typical deal. They were sinking, and he said, Lord, if you'll save me, I'll never do it again, like that, you know. So that was his, his conversion. He was a slave trader in Africa, living this life of rebellion and debauchery. And uh, this frightening storm terrified him into believing in Christ. And when he got back, when he survived that and got back, he read this book, called The Imitation of Christ, which led to his eventual conversion. And he became a lay minister first in 1757, and then a priest in 1764, and then he wrote a book of hymns in 1779, one of which was Amazing Grace. And he was also uh, instrumental, you probably saw the movie Amazing Grace, about William Wilberforce. So he was like a mentor to William Wilberforce there in uh, London. On his tombstone, his epitaph, John Newton's epitaph is, John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Amazing story i got a million of them. Have you ever heard the story of Nathan Bedford Forrest? Well, I can't tell you because I'm running out of time. (laughs) But he was that Civil War guy who was the most ruthless, evil guy in the world. And after the Civil War, he also had one of these dramatic conversion stories. And so if you think, well, that never happened to me, consider yourself blessed. But you didn't have to go through all the horrible things that John Newton had to or Nathan Bedford Forrest had to. But God preserved you. You didn't have to take all those horrible beatings and go through all that trouble. Or like Paul, get knocked down on the road to Damascus. Look at his story. Now Saul, who we just met there in the beginning of chapter 8, the head persecutor of the church, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest there in Jerusalem. A bunch of these guys have escaped, and I know a bunch of them went up to Damascus. So a bunch of these uh, Christians are up there sharing Christ, sharing the gospel in Damascus, Syria. Same city that's there now. And Saul said, let me go up and get those guys. And so Saul uh, got uh, letters from the synagogues at Damascus saying, that he could arrest these, these people up there, these Christians. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, verse 3, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. You've heard of the Damascus Road experience? This is it. This is it. It's used nowadays for some dramatic experience somebody has. Most people don't even know where it came from. But this is where it comes from. Saul was on the road just before he gets to Damascus. Jesus appears to him in a bright light, all the glory of God, knocks him down, blinds him, and look what he says. Verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you can imagine if you're Saul, you're laying there and you're blind and this, this incredible things happen to you, and you hear the voice of God and you're thinking, I hope that's not Jesus or I am in big, deep, deep, dark trouble. But it is. Who art thou, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise, in, in spite of the persecution, in spite of what you've been doing, I want you to get up and go into Damascus, and it shall be told to you what you must do. And the men who were with him were speechless. They knew something incredible had happened. They heard this huge noise like thunder or something, but they couldn't understand it the way Paul did. And seeing no one, they didn't know what had happened. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. Now, it's interesting to me, When you think of Paul's experience here of being blinded by the light, I think before this, you know, Paul had been a brilliant teacher. He had gone and been educated, probably spent ten years, you know, in theology school, getting all these degrees and all this preparation, and he'd become a Pharisee. They were like the special forces of Judaism. There was only about 4,000 of them. They were like the cream to the cream, the most educated, the most knowledgeable guys in Judaism. And he had reached that level. So just think of yourself. One time I was talking to a professor at a college uh, about evolution and and, uh, some of these other issues of the creation account. And this guy was like foaming at the mouth. He was very emotional. And I said, hold on, why are you so upset? (laughs) We're just trying to... He says, do you realize I went to school for four years, then I went to graduate school for another three years, and then I got my doctorate. It took me seven years. I've been studying evolution and science for 15 years, and I've finally reached the pinnacle of success, and I'm teaching it in college, and you're telling me it's all hogwash. (laughs) And I very kindly said, well, it is. No, but you know what he said? You hear what he was saying? It's personal. It's personal to him. He took it personal. He spent his whole life in preparation, and now somebody's telling him he's wrong. He's wasted all that education and all that training, and his very vocation means nothing. He's teaching error. He took it personal, as you can imagine. And so Paul also, that's why he was so angry. That's why he was willing to kill these people. His whole life was being turned upside down by these people who were saying, you know, all that education, everything you've ever done, it's all wrong. Everything you've ever believed is wrong. So he did take it personal. And now, I mean, he probably had considered himself a 100-watt bulb And everyone else about a 25-watt bulb. He knows much more than anybody else. He's superior. Now someone's coming along saying, none of this is true. And here he is, think of the irony, getting struck down. He thinks he's a 100-watt bulb. The light of God has struck him down. And he's blinded by that light. The righteousness of Christ. True righteousness. It's come upon him. Okay? So as you go through the story, what happens? He goes into Damascus. Now, verse 10, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Ananias was one of these guys from Jerusalem that had fled up there because of the persecution. He knows who Saul is. He's up there hiding from him. And now the Lord's going to speak to Ananias and say, I want you to go in there and take care of Saul. Who? That guy? You must have him confused. You can't possibly want that guy, Lord. But again, this is the providence of God. This is the sovereignty of God. And so uh, God says, no, this is the guy, and he sends him in. You see Ananias arguing with God in verse 13. Here's a tip. Don't ever do it. Don't ever argue with God. So the Lord said, verse 15, no, he's a chosen instrument of mine. So what did we say? The sovereignty of God in evangelism. The sovereignty of God in evangelism. He's a chosen instrument of mine, God says. I am going to take him out. First I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Give up for me. You gotta commit yourself all the way, Saul. And so Ananias obeyed and, and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road by which you were coming. So he tells him the whole deal. And so I'm now, he's commissioned me to come. He's going to give you back your sight and fill you with the Holy Spirit. Amazing. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And obviously he believed because he arose and went out and was baptized, gave a public profession of his faith. What an incredible story, this guy who just the day of, you know, a week before had been killing people. And his whole job was to persecute and kill Christians, and now he is one. Now he's standing in front of the whole world saying, I believe in Christ as my Savior. How else does something like this happen? Talk about a watershed moment. And now this is the guy that God's going to take, sent out into the Greek world, the Gentile world. He's going to go through three missionary journeys in the book of Acts that we'll look at in the coming weeks. And he's going to take the gospel for the first time to Asia Minor and into Greece uh, and then the rest of the world. Incredible. And as I said before, he's going to write about half of the New Testament. This is a watershed moment. The church takes a different road. Now it's going out into the world. They didn't want to. They didn't like Gentiles. But God was sending them out. And so what does he do? Verse 20. Immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, Jesus is the Son of God. Very simple message because at this point, he doesn't know much. And just to kind of harmonize uh, his writings his, uh, from his letters as well as the book of Acts, he basically went out into the wilderness where he got a personal tutoring session from Jesus for about three years, went back down to Jerusalem and presented himself. And when the uh, other Pharisees and religious leaders in Jerusalem found out that he'd been converted, they were going to kill him, so he went back up to Tarsus uh, and when he got up to Tarsus, which is in Asia, Asia Minor, there was a tremendous movement in Antioch Syria, the whole Gentile church Barnabas gets Saul now Paul, his Greek name Paul, to come and help with teaching the new Gentile believers at Antioch and then after about a year they send Paul and Barnabas out on the missionary journeys that are recorded in Acts. And then it, by the end of the first century, the majority of the church is up there in those areas where, where Saul planted all those churches. Watershed. Big time. Right here. Are you making your list yet? Your top ten list? And so there there it is. And it's amazing to try to, you know, you can see something incredible like that. Do you ever wonder how such a, how this could happen? I mean, you look at Jesus, his life. How could such a humble, obscure man like Jesus, how did he get so many followers by the end of the first century? He had, you know, millions of people that come to Christ. But he was just a little carpenter from a little village on the side of a hill in a small country in the Middle East. He died at an early age with only a few hundred followers. He had no armies, he went to no universities, he ruled no country. He had Jesus had no possessions. He had no inventions, no armies. He went to no universities, had no degrees. He ruled no country. Incredible. He had no material wealth, yet the world's largest religion is named after him. More has been written about Jesus and more people have been influenced by Jesus than any other person ever born and he never went more than about 200 miles from his home. How is that possible? Well, obviously, he's the son of God, and so it's a supernatural thing, but how did he do it? It all happened because his followers served him after his death. His followers served him after his death. So God has chosen to use Paul, the other apostles, Philip, and all the other believers, and the church now, us, God has chosen to do it through us. It's all about Jesus, but God uses us to spread it, to cause it to happen. And so, because His followers served Him, you have this huge movement, and they literally change the world. In Acts 17, we'll see it, uh, when they saw uh, Paul and his guys coming, they said, there he is. That's the guy that's turned the world upside down. Right? What, what did he really do? He was turning the world right side up. The world is upside down. It's upside down. And those, when you come to Christ, it gets turned right side up. But their statement tells you the impact that Paul and the rest of these guys had On the world at that time, and so it's it's an amazing thing. Uh, And when after he come to Christ, Jesus said, "I'm going to show you how my suffer In, in our case, and in His." Did he have an easy life afterwards? He was transformed. When you came to Christ, whenever that was, you also were transformed. You're being transformed now. They call it theologians call it sanctification. It's a process. It's a spiritual growth. Did your life become easy? Not necessarily. You live in a fallen world and you're subject to everything that's going on here just like everybody else. Paul, on his case, he was harassed in every town he went to, usually arrested before he was through. Uh, And like in his uh, second missionary journey, he's run out of Ephesus, stoned in Iconium, flogged in Philippi, busted in Berea, left out of Athens, crushed in Corinth. Pretty good. Yet it was all fulfilling and worthwhile. He says in Philippians 3, you ought to read it. He says, before Christ, I thought what was important was my education and my family and this religious legalism and the law and all that. Now, everything that I thought was important is garbage compared to the transforming knowledge of Jesus Christ as my Savior what that has meant to me that is fulfillment Paul says that is real life let me close in prayer Lord thank you so much for blessing me and blessing us all with your word the truth and the transformation that has happened in our life our watershed event was when Christ came into our life And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who hasn't had that, I pray that they would be like the Ethiopian eunuch and they would ask and they would seek and they would pray until they also, we also have that watershed event. Jesus comes into our heart and changed our life. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you.